This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. As John Meacham said, Franklin Roosevelt had Lewis Howe and Harry Hopkins. John F. Kennedy had Ted Sorensen and Arthur Schlesinger Jr. John McCain had Mark Salter. Mark uses this perspective to tell us the private view of a public life. So we think we knew the story of McCain, but this gives us an entirely different perspective. Mark's perspective as a firsthand witness, as a man who shares McCain's sense of honor, brings the, rem- brings the remarkable story of John Sidney McCain III's life to us with a new urgency and insight and storytelling. Mark is a dear friend, so you might think I'm biased, but anyone would say that Mark's humility and skill has created a story of inspiration, a reminder of how politics and political life can be. Put simply, this is a perfect and wonderful book. Mark, welcome. Thank you. Mark, we often think that we know uh, what informed John McCain, but given that his uh, mother of 108, Roberta Mm -hmm. McCain, passed away yesterday, I've heard you say that it was her being that informed who he was as much as those legendary men. So tell us about it. She was the most charming person I ever met in my life. She was a force of nature. She was vivacious, hilarious, bold, risk-taking, endlessly curious, self-starter of a woman, uh, just uh, just, a, just an extraordinary human being, and uh, it was a, a great privilege to know her. She was, um, I think, the biggest influence on John McCain's life. His father and grandfather were, his father to a lesser extent than his grandfather, were basically legends to him. He, uh, he, uh, he was nine years old when his grandfather died at the end of World War II, and he was an adult uh, when his father died, but his father was away all the time at sea, and even when he wasn't at sea, he was at, at work in the Defense Department or in his office, wherever they were located. His mother drove them back and forth from base to base across country, saw to his education, saw to, that every trip included stops at cultural landmarks and museums and natural wonders. And uh, she's just this very curious, very well read. They're all read. His his entire family were extremely well read. And, and many people don't know this. John McCain was probably the most well-read person I've ever met. You know, mm. He was a voracious reader. He'd read anything, um, fiction and nonfiction. But she was, uh, her resilience and adversity, her, you know, uh, her, her enthusiasm for life, her endless curiosity, her, her, it just, he inherited all those traits from her and he knew it. He was aware of it and he said so many times, I'm my mother's son. Um, anyway, that's... You know, in one of the things that I thought was interesting reading the bookmark, there are a lot of stories that, you know, we know. The most classic being he was a POW. Right. But I was so struck when I was reading about it, just really on a granular level, understanding the kind of resilience and courage it took to turn down amnesty yeah. 
by his captors. Right. So remind us exactly what had happened and what state he was in and why he turned it down. Uh, so he was shot down in October of 1967 over Hanoi, uh, which was at the time the most heavily air defended city in the history of warfare. It was a Soviet system that had been sent up concentric rings of surface to air missiles that would drive pilots to try to duck their airplanes under the missiles. And that's when the anti-aircraft would get most of them. A surface to air missile actually tore off his wing. When he, when he uh, pulled the ejection handle, he was upside down and sm broke both arms and one leg uh, in the ejection. Uh, he landed in the, a lake in the middle of Hanoi, a five minute drive from the prison. So as he used to joke, escape and evasion class really wasn't very useful. Um, <laughs> um, they dragged him out of there. He, he, he could only inflate uh, his life jacket with, uh, by pulling the toggle with his teeth. Uh, when they dragged him ashore, uh, someone stabbed him with a bayonet a couple of times and they were beating him until an army truck arrived, threw him in the back and took him to a cell. And, and uh, the prison was known as Wallo, which means in uh, Vietnamese fiery furnace. It was a French built trapezoid shaped prison in the very center of Hanoi, uh, made of sandstone, I believe. And uh, they threw him in a cell there by himself and essentially left him there to die. He was too injured. They didn't think he'd survive. He had just months earlier been on a different carrier than the one he flew off of when he was shot down. He was on the USS Forrestal, which had a terrible fire that actually started when, when, when a plane across the flight deck from McCain's plane um, accidentally misfired a Zuni rocket that struck McCain's fuel tank. And uh, the result was 131 people died and the ship almost sunk. It was a terrible tragedy. Uh, he survived it and, and and the pool reporter that was flown out at the time was Johnny Apple of the New York Times. He and McCain struck, struck up a friendship so that when he was shot down, he got, I think, a first, a first page notice in the New York Times. Mm. Admiral son, you know, Lieutenant Commander Jonas McCain, you know, shot down shot over down. Hanoi. So the Vietnamese knew who he was and they ran in and said, OK, uh, you're an admiral son. Now we'll take it to the hospital. So they took him to a hospital, tried unsuccessfully to, to settle out of his broken bones, eventually just slapped a body cast on him. And uh, he started to uh, de decline. Uh, he got dysentery, he couldn't eat, uh, he lost a ton of weight. So they dumped him in a cell with a couple of other prisoners who, who nursed him to some semblance of health. But he was still, a year later in July of 68, he was still very, very ill, uh, probably weighed little more than 100 pounds. And his, unbeknownst to him, his father had been promoted to the military acronym is SYNC-PAC. It means Commander in Chief of all U.S. military in the Pacific, which included all U.S. military in the uh, Republic of Vietnam. Um, so they, they had offered him amnesty and said, um, uh, you know, we're going to send you home. Would you like to go home? All you got to do is, you know, say yes and sign here and do this. The prisoner code of conduct that they all learned before the before they were ever in combat, was that uh, prisoners were supposed to return, home, be repatriated in the order of when they arrived. And so he, he said, no, I can't. And they said, well, think about it, you're sick. They make exceptions for sick, you know? And uh, he went back and secretly tapped on the wall to the guy in the cell next to him. He was in solitary by now too. He had gotten a little healthier and they put him in solitary. And, um, 
but he had a guy on the other side of the wall, an Air Force uh, uh, pilot named Bob Craner that he was extremely close to. And they, they tapped back and forth and Craner recommended, go home, you're, you're sick enough. Um, n nobody will think the worst of it. But he felt very strongly that uh, the Vietnamese would use it as they w would intend to use it to, to, to demoralize the other POWs. The Admiral's son gets to go home. You guys are stuck here till the end. You're never going home. We're never letting you go, you know, and, uh, and so he refused. And I think he refused, uh, uh, you know, several times in several separate meetings with this guy that was sort of the political cadre over all the prisoner prisoner of war camps, a guy they called the cat. Um, the prisoners called the cat. And, uh, he always described it to me. He said, when I went to tell him the last time, when he said, what is your final answer? He said, uh, um, he noticed a copy, a, a, a somewhat dated copy, but a copy of the New York Times sitting at the little table that the, the cat was sitting at, open to an art book wall column, I guess, if memory serves. And, uh, and when he said, my final answer is no, he said the cat snapped his ink pen and ink went all over the paper. And uh, they took him back to his cell. One of the guards said, now things will be bad for you. And it took a few weeks but uh, uh, they, um, they, they were bad. Um, they took him to a special room and uh, basically beat him bloody for days on end, rebroke his arm, I think, one of his arms, and uh, you know, uh, kept you know, hounding him for, um, to make some kind of propaganda statement, which after I think three days of torture, he, he made. And uh, so something that he said, I felt I've been ashamed of it ever since. Uh, most people tell him, including the other prisoners, you only resist for as long as you're able. And, and many prisoners obviously broke under days and days of torture. You made these ridiculous stilted propaganda tapes, but uh, he did and he always worried that, um, and, and his father, he always worried his father would hear it because his father was in his chain of command and his father did hear it, did hear a recording of it. Um, mm. Never said anything to him though, but uh, his father never spoke of his son while he was in prison. Um, uh, and, if, and people were warned when they went in to meet the Admiral, don't bring up his son. He doesn't like to speak about him. Uh, but he, he, is, he was very religious, Admiral McCain, and he prayed on his knees every night. Mm. And, he, and he prayed aloud. And his, mo his mother, his, the Admiral's wife, would hear him praying for Johnny. And uh, every Thanksgiving and Christmas, he would spend with the Marines at the forward operating base, forward fire bases up, up along the DMZ. And at the end of the meal, every time they said, and we've gotten testimonials from Marine after Marine after Marine at all the different fire bases, that he would walk to the end of the runway or whatever, whatever the furthest northern extension of the, camp, the, the base was and look north after dinner and smoke a cigar, you know, looking in the direction of his son. Mm -hmm. So, Mark, you know, when I when I read that, aside from not even imagining how that's possible, it seemed inconsistent with some element of John McCain. He mm -hmm. was a he was a bit of a rascal. Yeah. He, you know, both at Episcopal, where he went to high school, and at the academy, he wasn't considered the most buttoned-up guy. At that moment, what what was informing him? Was it his his code. Uh, he was a man with he lousy, poor discipline, uh, impetuous, hot-tempered, um, uh, loved to sort of butt heads with authority. Didn't 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 buckle under very easily. Uh, and uh, uh, traits traits that stayed with him over the years. Um, but he was uh, 
the institutions uh, in which he was some, some, something of a rebel, Episcopal boarding school in Alexandria, Virginia, where he went to high school and the United States Naval Academy. Uh, he was always, and he was careful to make sure he, he told you, he said, I respected their honor codes and I never violated them. And uh, um, he also had codes that his, his father and grandfather had a, uh, an officer never lies, cheats or steal. He never, he never sloughs off his responsibilities to his subordinates. But uh, he, he, he sort of inherited those from his parents and the, and the code he got from the literature. I mentioned before what a, what a good reader was. He really loved fiction and he particularly loved Hemingway. And you know what? What some people refer to as you know the old Hemingway BS, you know, but the sort of the notion that you redeem yourself through uh, acts of courage and self-sacrifice in service of others—that was very much probably the John McCain's core conviction in life. And uh, those things, you know, and and you know, you he he had the prisoner of war code of conduct that he followed. Yes, he was a. A rascal. Uh, he had his uh, good good qualities, and he had a few 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 colorful, not so great qualities. But he was uh, an honorable man who had an honor code, and he stuck to it by and large all the days of his life. Mm. And 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 as a boss, you saw as his as my boss as your boss. Yeah. You know, although I've I've heard you boss him around. Yeah. Now you both had bad tempers. So who? Yeah. How'd you how'd you manage those relative tempers? Well, it's funny when uh, so I was first hired to be a foreign affairs aide and a writer for him, and um, and he loved he loved writing, and so he loved to be involved in that. And uh, uh, um, but uh, after a couple of years, he asked me to be. We we called ourselves administrative assistants then. Um, we had no need of the inflated title chief of staff, but now. I think that's gone gone to the wayside, and everybody's a chief of staff, no matter how small the staff is. But uh, um, he, I did become his uh, AA administrative assistant, and he asked me to, and he said, "Yeah, this is just one one thing." I said, "Why?" He goes, well, "We both have hot tempers." And I said, "Yeah." And he goes, "One of us should do something about that." <laughs> and making it clear, he meant me. So, um, so I tried to curb mine and uh, and let him express his when he felt the need. Mark, when you know you were uh, working on the railroad uh, without a college degree. Mm -hmm. um, I think you say in the book you were um, short on ambition and long on attitude. Yeah. Um, and then you end up as the chief of staff of one of the most powerful US senators. Mm -hmm. That's not exactly the normal rocket ship to that position. How, how'd you get from point A to point B? Oh, kismet. I mean, really, you just make one decision, you get lucky and something comes up. It's not, there's no, no rhyme or reason for it. I got tired of, uh, I, I was in a, uh, I mean, it was a fine job in terms of, I was a young kid and but it had been the early 1970s, and uh, I think I was getting four or five bucks an hour or something, which seemed like a lot of money at the time. I had a car and an apartment. <laughs> Could check those boxes. But it was a railroad that ran along the Mississippi River, and it was very hot in the summer and very, very cold in the wintertime. And um, I decided that after four years of that, I could probably probably find an easier way to make a living. So I decided I'd go back to college, and I went to a, a state school in Iowa for a couple of years, and... Uh, a teacher encouraged me to transfer to Georgetown. I went to Georgetown. I met Jean Kirkpatrick and people around Jean Kirkpatrick. I got a job at the UN when she was there. 
I was with her in the Republican convention in New Orleans in 1988 when I met John McCain's press secretary who introduced me not only to John McCain, but to his scheduler who was my, would eventually become my wife. Um, <laughs> the mother of yeah. your two girls. And it, was, it, was all, it was all just luck, uh, honestly, just luck. Yeah, I have a hard time with that one, but. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Let's go to a couple of the legislative things. There's one story in here that I was very taken aback by. So McCain, as we know, was very interested in campaign yeah. finance reform. Yeah. He was getting the bill. He, he was doing all the good political stuff to get it in good place. And then mm. Mitch McConnell did something that, to my reading, was incredibly nasty. And I'm, I'm like sitting there thinking, yeah. I, I, I'm really, McCain and Mark must have been furious with this guy. And then I get to the end of the book yeah. and I read another view of McConnell. So explain yeah. what McConnell did. Well, this was, um, okay. So uh, uh, McCain was running for president at the time on the early end of the campaign. And um, he was also championing campaign finance reform. There was some resentment among Republican senators at the time that McCain got a lot of press attention and a lot of favorable notice. He was on Sunday shows, you know, back when Sunday shows were must watch TV for people in politics. And, um, and you know, they felt there, I think there's some genuinely, you, you gotta be careful about how you express yourself sometimes. And I think there was genuinely some, some resentment that uh, McCain's pitch on campaign finance reform made them all sound, made his colleagues sound like they were crooks or something. I understand that. And I think he understood it after, after a bit. But uh, what McConnell did was challenge him on the floor. Well, name, you said that the current system is cor corrupting us. Who's corrupt? Name us. Name which ones. Now, anybody that's worked on Capitol Hill, even in those days, which were less polarized, polarized than they are today, um, have seen instances where, where uh, major donors have gotten something that they wouldn't have got otherwise that weren't exactly consistent with, you know, they got somebody to vote their way in a way that was not particularly consistent with the way that member of the Senate or House would have voted if they had been free to vote their views or thought they were free to vote their views. And there are plenty of examples of it. And, and even McCain would have cop to instances where this guy's, you know, important to me. You, you, you really don't want to cross that line and start fingering people. So they knew he couldn't answer. And there were three senators that did it, one of whom was a friend uh, and tried to be upfront about it, told him he was going to do that. And uh, but I put McCain, it got, and I, saw, I was on the floor within the Senate floor when this was going on and it was going back and forth. And he was trying not to name names, but then he sort of referenced something that had happened when he had sponsored tobacco legislation where the tobacco companies had promised uh, Republicans that uh, they would run ads supporting them if they voted against the tobacco bill. And he referenced that and McConnell batted it aside, but it was a tense and unpleasant moment. Um, do you want me to go on the end? But we, we, we tend, yeah. it's, it's a mistake, especially for, if you're gonna have a long time in politics to make permanent enemies, it's, you're just not a very effective person. And you also, I think when we look at politicians, we don't apply the same sort of, uh, we don't give them the grace we give other people in other professions or people in our lives who we see as fully three-dimensional characters, not one or two-dimensional as we see most politicians. 
And, you know, so for many years, McCain's and McConnell's office, they butted heads over campaign finance and other issues many times. But their offices were across the hall for about 10 or 15 years. You go to work with these guys every day. You spend long, long hours with them. You talk to them every day about this, that, or the other thing, even if you're fighting with them. Um, even if, you know, you don't, you know, you're not there at their birthday party or something, but, you know, uh, you become familiarity. And this, you know, sort of breeds a familial type quality to these relationships. Mm -hmm. You know, like you might have the brother or cousin you butt heads with every once in a while, they're still your cousin. And um, um, so when McCain was diagnosed with, with terminal brain cancer, uh, uh, privately, McConnell was tremendously emotional when John went to see him. He was uh, 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 really, really quite undone by it. And, uh, the, you know, the 30, 30 years of working you know, together, you know, even against each other, but in the same place, it will do that to you. So you, you talk about that we don't think of politicians as multidimensional, yeah. but it, I mean, I would think most people would say it feels different now. Is it, are we not giving them yeah, just, credit no, or no, is it different? No, it's different. And, and I, you know, I, look, I left the Senate and to go work on the 2008 campaign. And that was it. I didn't go back. I stayed associated with John McCann and worked for his political committees um, and for him for till he died. But uh, I didn't go back to the Senate, which I regret, but uh, it, it definitely has gotten worse. But it may be a little bit that I'm now doing what, what I've accused the general view of yeah. doing, which is just not judging these guys by the same standards I would apply to people in my own life or in other professions. And, uh, um, but it's gotten, um, uh, it, it's, it's gotten, uh, it, you know, when, when you become a powerful, politically powerful person, you've got a lot of people telling you how great you are and everything. So arrogance isn't uncommon and it never has been in politics, you know, going back, I suppose, to, you know, you know the very beginning of government, but- uh, I mean, there were pistols in yeah, Congress yeah, at one right, point. Right. Um, but uh, um, so it's, when I say this, it's gonna sound like, so what's new, but they're, they're just, they just seem to have lost some humility that you know, they were there to get something done. And the way to get something done in our government, and it's, this is on the left and right, it really is. Right now, I think the Republican Party is, is 10 years down a bad track or five years down a bad track ahead of you know, some elements of the Democratic Party. But this idea that we're gonna have it all our way all the time, it doesn't work in our system of government. The most you can do is three yards in a cloud of dust. And that's an honorable achievement. If you take the problems that show in your inbox, go and ask for 55 or 60% of your point of view with, with, with somebody across the aisle from you, come to terms on it and get something done for the American people. Not everything done. You know, now we've got the system where, oh, Obama comes in, we're going to have Obamacare and Republicans come in, we're going to throw Obamacare out. Oh, you know, Trump comes in, you know, we're going to have this tax code and now we're going to throw it out. And it's, you know, they've gone ahead and all the things you think you don't like about the Senate, the filibuster, the, uh, primarily, are actually things that induce people to compromise, you know, or used to, you know, and the more of those you get rid of, the more norms and customs and institutional rules you get rid of, the more and the less and less able the place is to, to, to shake hands on a deal and get something done. And it's gotten, 
to the point where it's almost total paralysis, you know? It's, it's well, it seems like, you know, looking at all the different legislative things <clears throat> that you talk about, um, so I think it was 2013 when the immigration yeah. uh, bill came to the Senate. and The last one. The last yeah. one. And it passed the Senate with pretty good majority, right? 60-something, yeah. votes. Yeah. And yet... Veto-proof. Paul Ryan would not let it get brought up in the House. Yeah. And that seemed to me the beginning. So what was going on in the Republican Party I was, there? I think it was Boehner then. It was Boehner. Oh, it was. It was Boehner. It was Boehner. Um, I'm telling you it was Boehner. Boehner, you know, Boehner, who I, I guarantee you understood the value of, of that comprehensive compromise of an immigration bill that had, you know, many Republicans in the Senate on board, the Obama administration on board. He understood it. But, you know, he had this caucus. I mean, the, the sort of the this freedom caucus, which is sort of the, you know, the guys that the, the most tea partyist of the tea party wave members in the house that said no to everything and would, you know, go after him and try to cost him a speakership and, and just make a nuisance of themselves and force him into this position. Now, what he should have done is put it up for a general vote and it would have carried easily because most, um, not all Democrats, uh, the AFL-CIO wasn't thrilled by the bill, but most Democrats, the overwhelming majority of Democrats and a sizable number of Republicans would have passed it in the House. But he felt there would have been a rebellion in his ranks. And so he never brought it to the floor. I, I think that was an error of ju in judgment on his part. We would, have, we would have addressed the immigration problem with a sensible, practical solution instead of this phony business now of Trump building a fake wall. It's just useless, you know. Um, we would have, you know, actually done something humane, sensible, practical, and economically sound. So, do you think that was a bit of a turning point? Of no, it was, I mean, no. I mean, it, it was. It's. It was just another step. You know, it just. It's just a. Trend. It was incremental. Yeah, incremental. And uh, it was. As McCain always lamented about immigration, and he took three giant tries at it at, at considerable political cost to himself. Was that it's. It, it's just not that hard of a problem. We, we've we've politics because you've got some people fired up to think you know um, I mean it's just there's you know these Mexicans are coming here and taking our jobs so here's what happens when Mexicans get deported from the local meatpacking plant nobody takes those jobs yeah no locals take the jobs as McCain always put it I can offer fifty dollars an hour to some native-born American to pick lettuce in Yuma Arizona in August and I won't get one guy to do it you know and that's uh, uh, that's you know, like every other wave of immigrants, they're prepared to start in the bottom rung of opportunity in this country and work their way up. And they're quite successful at it. And they're quite a credit to this country and quite valuable to us. They, they're, immigrants generally make us a better country with every immigration wave. But they've, uh, they've fired up people who, who really don't know better to believe that it's some attack on their kind of America. There's a cultural and, and not with everybody, but there's a, an element of racism in it. And, uh, and they've turned a, a medium-sized problem into this insoluble one. It's, and it's just, he just found that ridiculous. As he used to say, it's not Medicare. You know, I don't know how we're gonna make Medicare solvent in 20 years, you know. It's not, it's, you know, why, you know, we can't do this. this. Is not, we it, can't yeah. get this done, you know. You know, he was, you know, he was, his last great, uh, moment in the Senate, really, his last great statement was when he flew back um, just a few days after being operated and having a brain tumor 
or, or most of a brain tumor removed. And, um, and that felt iconic. That yeah, moment. it was, it was. And he walked in and he was, you know, not everybody loved him in the Senate, but he was very widely respected and loved by many people. He was a fun, fun guy to be around and uh, um, charming and like his mom was. And, 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 uh, but he walked into it. And funny. Yeah, and funny, very funny. He, you know, he was just, he was, he was exhilarating to be around. And, um, and he gave this speech and his speech was essentially, we called it the regular order speech, which sounds very arcane and esoteric. But uh, he said, we've, we've, we've decided that we can have a, all the loaf all the time and we're not, we're, we're not, we're not, we don't get anything done, anything done. It's, it's arrogance on all our parts, you know, and we, we, you know, we, we're, we're aggregating all the power in this place to the leadership. So at that time, what, what was happening was the, 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 the Mitch McConnell and the Republican leadership in the Senate were working on a, quote, alternative to Obamacare that McCain would end up voting against two days later in the famous thumbs down thing. But um, they, uh, uh, it, it wasn't an alternative, obviously. It was going to repeal certain select parts of Obamacare and basically fatally wound it so that you know nobody would really have it and um, um, that wasn't being done by the by the committee of jurisdiction the health committee it was being done by leadership staff and McCain said why 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 are we letting the leaders decide for us the committees is would be where most of the real compromising got done because you know you spend most of your time on the committees you're assigned to you get to know members of the committee better than you know other members, you know. Even, but you say that doesn't happen even anymore. Members, well, it does to an extent. On certain armed service still does, intelligence still does. The Senate Intelligence Committee came out with a pretty damning report on Russia that somehow got lost in the great miasma of Trump. Of Trump land. You know, <laughs> but it was, you know, and, the, and Marco Rubio signed off on it, you know, who's, who was temporarily, you know, the uh, Republican chair. Um, so there are a few committees where it's still done, but 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 not not like it used to be. And those relationships with those committee members were always cross aisle. You would know Democrats on your committee better than you'd know a lot of guys in your own caucus. And that's where deals got done. You had dinner, all that kind of stuff. And the more and more it gets done by staff in the leader's office, the less and less that happens, and the less opportunity is to really make. We can't get anything done that lasts. It sticks because with every change in majority, out goes this. You know, yeah, it's just, uh, you know, I don't know. I can't remember what the numbers are, but go see how many Republicans voted for Medicare. That's why it's still here. Well, and and because I think it's so representative of um, what McCain stood for is there um, there was a series of protests in the Ukraine mm -hmm. after uh, President uh, Yunukovych. Yeah, voted against uh, them joining the European Union yeah. at Putin's yeah. insistence. Yeah. And McCain was there with, I think, Chris Murphy. Yep. Um, and what was it about what was happening there that, to my observation, epitomized what John McCain cared about? Well, he cared. He, he looked at this country um, the way Lincoln sort of saw it, you know, um, it's a, an almost sacred project to prove that self-government is, is the only moral government and that every human being is entitled to it. 
And so he identified with every freedom movement, every, you know, you know, you know, I mean, it could be 10 people in a distant remote third world place and, you know, somehow John McCain would do, do, do something for them. Um, but he was very, very moved by what are called the Maidan, the Euromaidan um, rallies, protests, you know, where you had a half a million or more people in that square every night in the wintertime. And, um, Protesting a great yeah, personal yeah, risk. Yeah, risk. And they're, you know, they're, you know, uh, you know, you know, uh, you know uh, thugs were murdering them and beating them and all that kind of stuff. And he was, uh, he, he told me that the night, the first night he went to the square, he's, he was in a trade union building or something on the edge of the square and looking down at it. And, uh, um, and they were all holding their uh, lights on their phones, you know, and, and he says, huh. it, it was just, in, he was just indescribably moving to me that he's, he's so hopeful, you know, after all this corruption, was successive different <laughs> and, you know, governments and uh, corruption and, you know, Putin, always the heavy hand of Russia and, um, you know, the, this one will probably get squashed too. There's just something so brave, so persistent, so hopeful in human nature, you know, to believe in their own autonomy so much that they hope that they, they would be able to live as free people and uh, choose their own government. And the next day he was, they, he was asked by the, you know, protest, the sort of protest leaders to, to speak and it was, was translated and he, uh, he did. And he said it was one of the great honors of his life, mm. but he was yet tremendously moved by it. And and tell us about the warm friendship between McCain and Putin. Yeah, well, yeah, he and uh, he, he he had Putin as early as two thousand, I think, uh, or nineteen ninety nine even. Whenever um, uh, you know, he 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 said something when he ran for president the first time about you got to watch this guy Putin. He, you know, he's up to no good or you know, something like that. And then. Uh, he was a harsh critic all along and saw it coming because Putin was supposed to have been a sort of a technocrat, you know, yes, he was a K, you know, KGB guy, but uh, he was supposed to be this sort of modern practical guy. And, and it turned out he was, you know, a little bit of a Stalin, but. Um, uh, or a lot of bit of a Stalin. Well, I don't think he's murdered. Killing as he, many he, people. Yeah, he hasn't killed as many, but, um, but he's killed plenty. Um, and um, uh, so, uh, you know, and that, you know, he was always convinced Putin was trying to reconstitute as much of the old Soviet Union as he could reassemble. And Ukraine obviously was the most important republic that they, you know, that gained its independence after the Cold War. So he was, he was very close to our ambassador there. Um, I'm often asked, how would McCain have voted on, on the impeachment? Would he have voted like Romney? I'm always reluctant to say what he would have done when he's no longer here to tell me what he would have done. I think that's unfair of me. But all I know is he despised Putin. He uh, spent one of his last New Year's on the front lines in the eastern Ukraine with Ukrainian Marines, Amy Klobuchar, our ambassador, and Lindsey Graham, you know, and th said, again, that was one of the highlights of his life. <laughs> and uh, uh, so I got, I got a vague idea he wouldn't have been too happy with uh, the President of the United States trying to uh, bribe a sovereign government to uh, dummy up a, a bad, uh, a bad, uh, a bad report on his uh, likely opponent. So you taking a dim view of that. Uh, we can't not have a conversation and talk about uh, why did McCain, he was in great standing in the Senate, he was in really good shape, decide to run for president. Um, the second time? The, 
Both times. Both times. The first time was almost a little bit of a, I, I, I don't know, I call it a lark. But you went into it, he went into it um, realistic. You know, uh, George W. Bush was sort of the anointed, uh, uh, the prohibitive favorite, had most of the establishment in the party lined up behind him, had most of the donors, that's for sure. And, uh, um, you know, had a lot of talented guys and girls and, uh, you know, I mean, had a virtual built himself kind of almost an, an administration down there mm -hmm. and in Austin. Um, and they liked each other, he and Bush, you know, and he didn't, there wasn't no, no hard, hard feelings. So McCain thought very highly of, of governor, then governor Bush's father. He thought he was a wonderful president, but he, so he had this sort of, oh, what do I got to lose? Um, attitude. And, uh, and, you know, at the time he was just beginning his sort of long, well, not, I mean, he was a couple of years into it or a few years into, you know, calling for a, a ban on soft money and, and, and other campaign finance reforms. So why don't I run as a Republican campaign finance reform? Not your first, not, not sort of your instinctive, <laughs> you know, right. yeah, um, but uh, instinctive to him uh, he, it, because it became a broader reform message. It became something like, I can't fix Medicare. I can't fix our broken procurement system. I can't fix any, no president can unless I first you know, get all this seven-figure donations, all this money washing around, as he put it, in our politics out, you know, and because uh, uh, it stops us from getting a lot of stuff done that we, we need to do. The, what it does, it, 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 most of that money goes for preserving the status quo. So that, that, that turned out to be a pretty winning message. He also had a he was a great campaigner in this way and not, not, not a great orator, but a great uh, back and forth kind of guy with audiences in the state that's primary is really equipped for that is New Hampshire where you, you really do it uh, town hall by town hall. And uh, I think he did like 110 town halls. And by the time they were over, they were this like a circus. I mean, tons of media then by that time, but I mean, just all these crazy people would show up and he'd call them all up on stage and, you know, all right, you know, yeah. five minutes, give me your, you know, uh, and he would, you know, he would spar back and forth with questioners, you know, and they loved it, you know, and he, you know, I mean, he wasn't afraid to say, yup, you're wrong. And he wasn't afraid to get booed. And, uh, and it became, uh, he just captured something, but we didn't, you know, we had nowhere near the resources that they had. And so they ground us down in South Carolina and later primaries, but, uh, we always had very nostalgic views of 2000, you know, and if you asked- if Feels you, like it was his time, right? He, yes, it was. And he, I, I'm pretty confident he would have beat Al Gore by, you know, obviously Bush lost the popular vote to Gore, but if you, you know, he, he always looked at that. I think it was probably one of the highlights of his career. We've been talking with Mark Salter, the author of The Luckiest Man. And Mark and I had so much to cover that what we decided to do was break it up into two parts. Part two will cover the 2008 campaign, Sarah Palin, and the current presidential campaign and presidency. Stay tuned. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. Produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.